You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we're concentrating on an easily missed infection with horrible consequences. A series of articles on bmj.com deals with herpes simplex encephalitis. An easily missed article with tips on spotting it, new guidelines for treatment, and a patient's journey with a man whose diagnosis and treatment were delayed which resulted in considerable neurological problems. To kick us off, Mabel Chu talks to the co-author of that patient's journey, Tom Solomon. I have with me in the studio Professor Tom Solomon, who's Professor of Neurology at the University of Liverpool and at the Walton Centre NHS Foundation Trust. Tom, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you. Tom, you were also the lead author of guidelines on an approach to adult and paediatric patients with suspected encephalitis. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, about the need for these guidelines in the first place? Yeah, well, uh, encephalitis, as you know, is inflammation and swelling of the brain, uh, most often caused by a virus. And uh, the guidelines came about because these are patients who are often badly managed and uh, as an example of this, we, we know that when there's a medico-legal case, uh, the costs uh, of awards are typically three to five million. So it, it's a big problem to, to the NHS and society as a whole. And because it's not the most common condition that doctors will meet, um, the guidance is needed about how best to approach them. Later, Adam Zeman will discuss in more detail the fact that the diagnosis is often missed. Would you like to tell us a little about the disease process itself? For instance, how is it transmitted? Yes, so when, uh, in the case of viral encephalitis, the, the most commonly diagnosed cause is herpes simplex virus. And this is a virus that uh, 80 to 90% of the population have uh, already in them. Um, it it's, uh, hides away in nerve cells, and as you know, in, in many people will just cause a cold sore. But in other people, the virus uh, goes the other way and goes up into the brain and, and causes uh, encephalitis there. So that's really in the older people and adults. In, in young children, encephalitis may sometimes be, uh, happen when, when they meet the virus for the first time. But we don't understand why it is that this virus sometimes causes cold sores. In other patients, it causes no problems at all. And then in the third group, it causes this devastating encephalitis illness. What are the clinical features that might lead one to suspect the diagnosis? Yeah, well, um, Adam Zeman in his article, uh, they point out how, how this diagnosis can be easily missed and they describe a patient. Um, but it shouldn't really be easily missed. I think the key message, and this is a message that comes through in the guidelines, is that you have to have a low threshold for suspecting encephalitis. So this is in any patient who may have a febrile illness or uh, may just have confusion or altered consciousness. And in anyone who you suspect any type of CNS infection, then the cardinal investigation is a lumbar puncture. So uh, some patients will need a scan before their lumbar puncture, others can have the lumbar puncture immediately. And uh, then if, if encephalitis is suspected, we would urge people to start treatment as soon as possible. Now, clinicians often get concerned about when lumbar puncture is safe to do. What do the guidelines say about contraindications to lumbar puncture? This is a slightly controversial area because there's been a, a confusion of evidence, if you like, over, over the past decade or two. But um, 
essentially most patients who have a suspected brain infection, including encephalitis, should have a lumbar puncture at some stage. Now, in patients who are severely ill and there's a worry that they might have brain shift, then those are the patients where we would want to do some imaging first to check that there's no brain shift before the lumbar puncture is done. And those will be patients with obvious focal neurological signs, uh, such as a hemiparesis or, or deep coma. Um, uh, and once the, once the scan's been done, clearly if it does show brain shift, then, then we would suggest that people wait before doing the lumbar puncture. But actually, in most cases, uh, you find that there's no evidence for brain shift at all and the lumbar puncture is safe. Presumably, as part of the assessment, one would also want to do uh, other tests, such as checking for glucose levels. Yeah, that's part of the basic A, B, C, D. Uh, one would look for other obvious causes of, of altered consciousness. Um, but we don't find those are a problem. Uh, one of the challenges is that, that people will perform those investigations. Um, they might be worried about some kind of brain insult, but then they, they don't go on and do a lumbar puncture when they should do. And so our guidelines were formed on, on the back of some studies that we'd done which showed the kind of clinical practice that was happening typically in, in patients with encephalitis. Um, and one comes across uh, in, in the notes all sorts of sort of strange rationales and strange logic um, uh, where, for example, you know, you see things written like atypical pneumonia uh, to explain perhaps altered consciousness in somebody who's normally fit and well and who might just have a few crackles in the chest. Um, and really, you, you know, clinicians should not be writing things in the notes like atypical pneumonia until they've ruled out uh, a typical CNS infection. So the lesson is that in any patient with a febrile illness and confusion or altered consciousness or any sort of behavioural, cognitive or neurological features, think of CNS infection and investigate it appropriately. So what about treatment? So the treatment for encephalitis caused by herpes simplex virus is acyclovir, uh, and this has been around for a, a decade or two, and we know that if it's started early, it improves the outcome. So before acyclovir treatment, the mortality was about 60%. Uh, now if you start prompt treatment, the mortality drops right down, and also the sequelae uh, drop right down if, if treatment is started within the first few hours of hospital admission. Now, this leads us well into the Patient's Journey article in the BMJ, which you co-wrote with a patient who had had herpes simplex encephalitis. Tell us about the consequences of infection in this man. So, so his was a really interesting case. Um, he had short-term memory problems, which were caused by damage to the medial temporal lobe and hippocampus, which is a common site of damage for herpes encephalitis. And although he was English, when he came round, he was really struggling with the English language because of a nominal aphasia. But his French was actually uh, relatively preserved, and he'd studied French to a very high level uh, at university. And so what this meant, bizarrely, was that his parents uh, couldn't actually communicate with him because they didn't speak French, and they had to use interpreters to talk to their own son, which, as you can imagine, was very difficult for them at the time. Now, thankfully, things improved over time, um, although he still struggles with uh, the English language and will prefer to read a book in French than in English. And quite often, uh, when you talk with him and he's struggling for a word, you can see that he actually gets to it through the French, so he'll remember what the French is, and then he will 
uh, from that deduce the English. People are interested in, 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 in seeing a bit more of him having read the patient journey in the BMJ. We do actually have some uh, footage with him on, uh, on the web, which you can find easily with a search engine if you put in encephalitis and BBC and Solomon. Uh, and, and then you actually really get a feeling for some of the problems that he had. Yes, and it's a salutary lesson for uh, clinicians in the front line to, as you say, have a low threshold for thinking of the diagnosis. And if one thinks of it, to investigate appropriately because we do want to avoid um, serious sequelae such as this and reduce mortality as well. And finally, Tom, where do you think uncertainties lie for future research? Yeah, so I, I think um, we, in, in talking about how this virus causes disease and, uh, and how it leads to particular damage in particular parts of the brain, uh, this is a, an area of, of research that we're currently looking at in Liverpool where we have a, a large research group studying a whole range of brain infections from encephalitis through meningitis, uh, HIV neurological problems. And... Um, you know, it's clear, clear, and it will be clear to people who read the guidelines uh, and also read the accompanying editorial that although we have improved the outcome of this condition in recent years, there's, there's clearly a lot more research to be done, both in, in improving outcomes but also in determining what the causes are in other patients with encephalitis. So we've talked about herpes simplex virus encephalitis. In recent years, we've found that antibody-mediated encephalitis is also important caused by things like NMDA receptor antibodies or antibodies against voltage-gated potassium channels. But there's, uh, in any encephalitis series, usually between 30 and 50% of patients have no diagnosis. So there's, there's clearly masses more work to be done in this area. And as I said, that patient journey is available online now on bmj.com. And the film that Tom mentioned is also linked to from the podcast page. Now on to diagnosis. I'm joined on the line by Adam Zeman, who's Professor of Cognitive and Behavioural Neurology at Peninsula Medical School. He's one of the authors of the easily missed article on herpes encephalitis. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Adam. That's a pleasure. Now, in your article, you say herpes simplex was one of the most commonly identified cause of infectious encephalitis in a large prospective UK study. Yet you think this is an easily missed condition. Yes, it's a, the diagnosis will ultimately come to light in cases of herpes encephalitis, but sometimes the diagnosis is delayed. So the question really is one of delay rather than of the risk of missing it entirely. And one doesn't want, in this particular condition, the diagnosed, diagnosis to be uh, delayed at all, if possible, and certainly one doesn't want it to be made in the post-mortem room. Is there any data about how often our diagnosis is delayed? There is limited data. There was an audit study which uh, showed that the majority, in the majority of cases, the diagnosis was made le- later than it could have been. Mm. Any misdiagnosis is bad. Why do you think uh, missing herpes encephalitis is particularly disastrous? It is a fatal condition if untreated uh, in around uh, 70% of cases, and treatment with acyclovir will reduce that mortality down to around 20%. So there's, uh, that's one very clear motivation for recognizing it early and treating as promptly as possible. But delayed diagnosis carries a second risk, which is of neuropsychological impairment and particularly memory impairment. And patients who, in whom the diagnosis is made late are often left with very serious 
neuropsychological sequelae is sometimes a very severe amnesic syndrome, which is profoundly disabling. So both for reasons of avoiding mortality and avoiding morbidity, uh, prompt diagnosis is very important. Mm. And when we're talking about late diagnosis, are we talking days? Yeah, we're talking, we're talking days. It, it's, it's a condition in which hours matter and a delay of two or three days is likely to have a high cost in terms of um, neuropsychological outcome. Mm. So why is it easily missed? Uh, does it masquerade as, as something else? I think it's easily missed for a number of reasons. One is, one is that encephalitis is just not very common, and so it, it isn't in the front of the minds of doctors in A&E often, and, of course, what the mind does not know, the eye will not see. Mm. So uh, it's important to, to raise awareness of the possibility of the diagnosis. Then it tends to begin in a rather non-specific way, uh, uh, as a flu-like febrile illness with headache, and the symptoms which implicate the brain can develop rather insidiously, and they can be misinterpreted in, in a number of ways. So the confusion that associates the condition is sometimes interpreted as straightforward delirium accompanying a febrile illness. Mm-hmm. If seizures occur, they can be misinterpreted uh, in terms of primary epilepsy or in children as febrile convulsions. If behavioral changes develop, they're sometimes thought to have a psychiatric explanation. And I have seen herpes encephalitis misdiagnosed as stroke. So there are a number of, uh, of opportunities mm. for, for error here. And uh, to make a, a slightly political point, I think another reason why uh, the condition is missed more often than it might be or why diagnosis is delayed longer than it should be is that we don't have neurologists in district general hospitals. So the, the burden of diagnosis falls on any physicians and general physicians who naturally won't have seen it all that often. Sure. We're talking here about um, specifically herpes encephalitis. Uh, is this following on from, from an outbreak of herpes simplex, or, or is this just something that can manifest uh, by itself? History of the cold sore would certainly, of previous cold sores, would certainly be in keeping, but I don't think it's the case that everyone who develops herpes encephalitis has, has that history. There must have been some prior exp- exposure, but it won't necessarily be be clinically evident. So if you are an A&E doctor or a, a GP uh, with a patient who you suspect may be suffering from herpes and encephalitis, are there any sort of definitive clinical signs or, or features that you should look out for? Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing pathognomonic. So it's important to have the condition in the back of one's mind, in one's sort of diagnostic repertoire, so to mm. speak. Um, and then the, the thought should pass through one's mind if one encounters somebody who has a flu-like illness with headache, particularly if it's a bad headache, mm-hmm. and then the, the clue is really given by any evidence for, of cerebral involvement. So that could come from a behavioral change, progressive lethargy, withdrawal. It could come from uh, a seizure, which might be subtle and focal, so it could just be a short period of absence or an olfactory hallucination, though it may be a generalized seizure. It could come from a cognitive feature, uh, such as word-finding difficulty or memory problems, and it could, of course, come from development of, of frank neurological signs, weakness down one side, say, but that's going to be a relatively late development. Mm-hmm. So really any, anything that in the context of uh, an infective illness, a flu-like illness, suggests that the brain is, is implicated. Okay. Now, 
the investigations that a clinician should undertake are, are all in the article in more detail than we can go to in this podcast. But you made the point there about neurologists and how they're not available in district generals. Um, if you do have uh, a patient who you think has this and, and some of those uh, investigations lead to this, is a prompt referral to a neurologist important? Uh, a prompt referral would be, would be very reasonable, but the most important thing by a long way is to start treatment uh, there and then, because acyclovir is an extremely effective treatment for herpes encephalitis. And as, as I said earlier, this is a condition in which hours count. Mm. So I certainly certainly wouldn't delay um, treatment while waiting for a for a neurological opinion, but but, but it would be reasonable to refer. Okay, so um, how does one manage the infection then? Acyclovir is is now the, the the keystone of management. It's given at a dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram intravenously eight hourly, provided renal function is normal. Uh, and it is a very effective treatment for herpes. And if given early in the course of condition, uh, in, the, in the course of the condition, it's quite possible to achieve a, a entirely full recovery physically and, and neuropsychologically. Um, if there is a possibility at the point at which treatment is instituted that the CNS infection might be a bacterial one, then one would want to give some bacterial antibacterial treatment alongside mm-hmm. the acyclovir. There isn't at present good evidence for giving steroids in herpes and encephalitis. Sure. And um, if for any reason the diagnosis has been delayed, does that management change? It, it only changes in the sense that if the diagnosis is delayed, the presentation is likely to be more severe and so the patient is more likely to require intensive care mm. because of seizures or raised intracranial pressure or coma. Um, but the early prescription of acyclovir remains the same. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back looking at the future of medical research dissemination. Is it the end of journals as we know them? Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.